Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I'm honored to have Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland with me. She is the author of The Binge Cure and Food for Thought, radio talk show host, psychoanalyst, mother, and wife. And one of the uh, takeaways I think you're going to hear from her story as we talk through it today is grace and compassion can cure many of our insecurities. So Dr. Nina, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for having me. Yes. So to start your journey, um, at a very young age, you had a thought about my thighs are too thick. And I would say most kids at the age that you had this thought at are not thinking that same thing. So talk a little bit about, you know, kind of those young years, the way you were raised and starting to have these realizations of the thoughts going through your mind. Yes. So when I was five years old, I suddenly looked down at my legs and thought, oh, my thighs are too big. And by the way, I was a normal weight, even like thin, (laughs) totally normal weight, five-year-old. And I wasn't watching TV. My mom read like Time Magazine and stuff like that. There were no like cosmopolitan magazines lying around the house. I wasn't comparing myself to anybody else. But I had this thought of, oh, um, my my thighs are too big. And somehow if I had skinnier legs, I would be better. Mm. And this began my descent really into eating disorder hell. So that by the time I was an adolescent and into my teenage years, it seemed like my whole life revolved around weight, food, weight, dieting, and eating disorders. So yeah. I would wake up vowing to be good that day and I would go to sleep thinking if I had been good or bad or would I gain weight the next day or lose it. I, If I was out with friends or hiking with friends, I wasn't thinking, wow, this is beautiful. What a lovely day. And oh, what the view. Oh my gosh. No, I was like busy calculating how many calories have I had. Da, 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 da. And I would restrict. I was always on some crazy diet. So I was always restricting and then inevitably my willpower would fail because you cannot stay on eating, you know, only a grapefruit and an egg <laughs> forever. Eventually yeah. my, my or whatever it was, my diet was eventually my willpower would fail and I would just like go crazy, eat the kitchen, whatever. And sometimes I would purge, which is why I considered myself at a certain point, the poster child for eating disorders because I had them all. And what's interesting is that finally in college, I went to therapy, but I went for anxiety. Yes. And, and I think like this is an important part of my story, which also reveals why at age five did I suddenly begin to think that my legs were too big. So I went for anxiety and I talked to my therapist about every part of my life, right? Guys, friends, goals, future, all the things. But I never told her about one thing. She had no idea that she was actually talking to the poster child of eating disorders. She had no idea that I was struggling so much with food. But by the time I left treatment, all my eating disorders were gone, never to return, Mm. which I can talk about that in a moment. But let me answer the question of why at age five did I come to believe that. So my parents were just recently retired college professors, although my dad is still, he's still at it. He's Zooming with students in India and stuff. (laughs) Um, 
but they were college professors and they were very academic and very serious. And I was not that serious kid, right? I was a kid. And so I was always getting the message of, you're too loud. You're too dramatic. You're too sensitive. You need to calm down. Oh my God. You're just stop. Like this message of you're too much. Yeah. Permeated my life. And my five-year-old brain took that. My five-year-old mind literally took that as you're, you're literally too much unconsciously. I didn't, I didn't say to myself, Oh, they're telling me I'm too much. There must be literally too much of me, but that's what my unconscious mind did with it. Yeah. So that's how I came to think that if I were smaller, I would be better because I was being mm. told I was too big, too much. So let's dive into that. There, there's a few different um, points that you made in there that I think are really good. Um, we'll start with the last one that you just got done talking about. And that would be, all right, so someone here is listening to to this and says, well, gosh, I, I've said this to my kiddos. Um, I hope this doesn't, you know, become a, a long lasting thought in their head. So what is something, you know, parents can actively do to communicate with their kids effectively, but not, you know, plant these seeds of, Hey, it's too much, or, you know, start planting seeds that there's something wrong, if that makes sense. Well, as a parent, I totally understand the concept of feeling like it's all too much. I mean, <laughs> I have a teenager now, so <laughs> I get it, but I just, she's actually fantastic. But sometimes it's like when you're a parent, it's just like, oh, just it's the, come on. But it, instead of like labeling the, the what, what you're getting from your kid, like labeling the level and the intensity of their feelings, ask them more about it. Mm. If, it if they feel really like they seem really amped up and they're just, ah, instead of God, you're too much, like calm down. It's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal to them. So say to them, why is this such a big deal to you? Help me understand this. Mm. Right? Instead of like trying to tamp it down, just ask more. And that will actually calm the person down. Because if someone is saying, oh my God, I mean, I'm so upset. And someone says, you shouldn't be upset. Does that, does anyone go like, oh, I shouldn't be upset. Oh, now I'm not upset anymore. Never. It, now they're even more upset because they're upset for the situation that they were in. And now they're upset because they're not being understood. So now um, they're more upset. But if someone, if you're upset and someone says, well, tell me more about that. Mm. What does that mean to you? What, what does it mean about you? You know, your, your friend, I'm trying to think of a kid's example. Your, your friends all went to this party and you found out about it on Snapchat and you weren't invited and that's upsetting. Yeah, what does it mean to you? Tell me more. Don't say things like, oh, they're not your friends anyway. Or, oh, it's probably not a good party. Or, oh, you shouldn't be upset about things like that. There are kids in Ukraine dealing with war. Don't say any of that stuff. Yeah. Say, yeah, what about that? Mm. That's how you deal with it. That's really good. Yeah, I think about that as you're saying it, you know, as a kid, I I talked quite a bit in class and, you know, teachers would say you talk too much, right? Well, fortunately, I I didn't ever stop talking because that that served me very well in what I do as a career. But you understand you need to learn the context of when it was too much, right? And if you just heard too much, you could easily say, oh, I should be quiet and not speak up or be willing to voice opinions. and, And that can be detrimental long term. Absolutely. We we live in a society that kind of tells us not to have feelings or to fit into a box. And so what do we do when we have emotions? What are just react? They're just reactions to situations. 
Yeah. And we, as a, as a society, we're told, oh, you know, you're angry. You have an anger management problem or, oh, you're sad. You must be depressed. Take a pill. There are people who are depressed and need to take medication, but I'm talking about just natural human responses that connect us to ourselves and each other. Or you're anxious, take a pill for that. Or even, oh, you're happy, maybe too happy, maybe a little manic. Like you just can't win. And so we learn to pathologize our natural human emotions. And then what do we do with them? Well, sometimes we um, uh, stuff them symbolically, turn to food or do all kinds of different uh, behaviors to try to avoid or respond to feelings. I I co-edited a book called Beyond the Primal Addiction about all these addictions. Addictions. I mean, yeah, they are addictions, but at the at the at the heart of each of them, it's an attempt to try to cope. It's like a frenemy. It is a friend. It's helping you in some way, whether you're you can't stop shopping, you can't stop eating, you can't stay off the internet, you whatever it is, you're gambling, you're what whatever it is, there's always a reason for it. Mm, that's good. So piggybacking off that, you said, hey, I decided I would go to therapy and you started doing this in college. And to your point, you never bring up one very important piece of your story, but you talk through all of the other pieces. So talk a little bit about, you know, being willing one to go to therapy. I think sometimes people are, for whatever reason, feeling, man, I'd be judged or it's not something that I need to do. I'll figure it out myself. So talk a little bit about being willing to do that. And then two, how you started to navigate as I figured out some of these other areas of my life and then correlating that to the food part. Yeah. Well, I, first, I want to tell you a very funny story about me going to therapy for the first time, which yeah. was not in college. Okay. And this is why it was even more amazing that I actually went to therapy in college and even more amazing that I became a psychoanalyst. Yeah. So when I was about 10, 11 years old, maybe older, maybe like 14, I think I was 14. Yeah. My parents take me to because I'm a 14 year old and I'm a normal 14 year old and I'm sulky and pouty and I talk back and I have ideas and I think their ideas are crazy. I'm like a normal 14 year old, but they thought it was just terrible. Like I had a bad attitude. So they take me to a therapist at Kaiser. Mm. So I walk in and here's this dude who's got his his office is made up to look like, I don't know, he was trying to channel Freud or something. And he's got his beard and he's sitting behind this big wooden desk and he looks at me and this is what he says. Child psychologist. He says to me, your parents tell me you're a very difficult child. Your parents tell me there's there's something like wrong with you, basically, is what I heard. Yeah. So I looked at him and I said, Wow. Oh, he said, then he said, You're a very disturbed child. Disturbed child. Yeah. Disturbed child. Very difficult, very disturbed child. Like this. So I said, F you. Only I didn't say F. <laughs> and he looks at me. And I and and he's like, Yes, well, I can see they're they're right. You have, you know, an anger issue. And I said, F you, I'm leaving. And then as I'm leaving, he says, you're going to have trouble with men one day, young lady. And he was 
was like 32. Yeah. <laughs> lady. And I, like in, in hindsight, I wish I'd said, no, I'm not. I'm a lesbian, which I'm not, but I wish I'd said that. Right. <laughs> I wish I had that snappy comeback, but I just glared at him and I probably said F you for a third time. And I left and I said to myself, therapy is ridiculous. Who would want to go to therapy? Like that was awful. I'm never going back to therapy again. Yeah. But I was really struggling in college Mm. and I, I knew that I could not resolve it by myself. And I knew that my eating disorders were getting worse. And I knew that I was super anxious about all things and I couldn't resolve it myself. And so I just thought, well, maybe Mr. You know, Neo Freud was an anomaly. I'll I'll give it a try. And I went and changed my life. So, but, so we never talked about my eating disorders, but we did talk about how harsh I was to myself, Mm. how critical, how judgmental, and how I was, you know, I was, I was so mean to myself that I was, would think about food or starve myself or change my weight or do whatever to, to get away from my own mean voice and to just try to be a better version of myself, which is the illusion that the diet industry sells us, which is, oh, by losing weight, this is your superpower by yeah. losing weight, you will become actually a better version of yourself. If you are shy, you will be confident, says the diet industry. Mm. If you don't have enough friends, oh, you're going to have invitations all the time. You will change your life simply by changing the number on the scale. And I completely fell for it. Yeah. And, and, but, but I came to realize in therapy that I had been a perfectionist, harsh, and probably won't come as a surprise that my parents were perfectionists, you know, and also my brother got like perfect scores on his SATs, full ride to Harvard. I was compared to perfect. So nothing I ever did was good enough for Mm. them and for me. I should say one thing about parents. I am a parent and uh, I, I don't believe in blaming because it does no one any good to say, well, they were perfectionists and that's why I'm the way I am. That yeah. does nobody any good. But to say, you know what? They were hard on me. They were perfectionists. They had, they, they didn't understand me. They were very left brain. I was very right brain. And because of that, I came to believe certain ideas about myself. And this is how it affected me. Like instead of blaming, explaining is really important. Yeah. So as I became nicer to myself as I turned my inner critic into a friend, I started noticing, oh, I'm actually doing less of those eating disorder behaviors or, oh, um, I'm writing about other things instead of just, you know, numbers in my journal. It used to be just numbers, calories I ate, calories I burned, the weight I was, the weight I was going to be. And by turning my inner critic into a friend, I was able to learn how to respond to myself when when I was upset, which I didn't know how, I thought you were just supposed to just get over it, <laughs> you know, somehow drop it, ignore it. That's not such a bad thing. So I really learned in therapy how to relate to myself differently. Mm. And as a result of that, cured myself of eating disorders with her help. Yeah. 
So I, I myself have not had a, an eating disorder, so I'm not going to speak from a point of I've been there, I understand it. But one thing that I think you consistently hear is there's a level of I wanted to have control of something. And that was something that I could control, right? I could control what I intook or I could control to a degree, like what the scale looked like, right? If it was higher than what I wanted, then I know I can make this move, this move and this move, and then it would be back to low like I wanted. And so I think everyone has the human desire for control, right? Uh, we, we all wish we could control things. We wish we could say, hey, this is how I want it to happen. And now it happens that way. So, you know, what is it about overcoming that control piece? Is Did you find yourself navigating into different areas of your life, trying to grasp control of something when you lost control of this, or maybe when you gave up certain areas of control there? Talk through that piece. Yeah, control can be a piece of it, having a sense of agency or mastery of your life. But I think it's overstated in the realm of eating disorders mm -hmm. and and like a lot of times people talk about that, especially with respect to anorexia. I mainly treat people who have binge eating disorder or bulimia. Um, and they think it's about control, right? They think yeah. they have no willpower. They think they have no control. And there's something else going on. I call myself a detective of the mind because it's the unconscious hidden aspects of your life that are controlling us more than we think. So in terms of control, often um, it's like a feeling of not having control in one area of, of our lives. Like, oh, I'm not getting the promotion and there's nothing I can do. My boss doesn't like me. Oh, I feel so helpless and upset. No matter what I do, nothing is working, can then get displaced unconsciously into, look at how out of control I am mm. with food. Or it can be displaced into like someone with a different kind of eating disorder. I'm I I don't have control here. So yes, to your point, I will have control over food. But it but it's so much more than that. Like sometimes I'll just use the example of of binge eating. People yeah. are like, why don't why am I why am I doing this when I know I shouldn't be doing it? I know it's bad for me, and I can't stop it even in the moment. That's because it's not logical, it's psychological. Mm. So you have to ask yourself, well, what are you feeling? First of all, what are you even feeling? <laughs> What's going on with you? But secondly, are you are you eating to symbolically fill a void? Mm. Are you eating to comfort yourself, to escape? Are you eating so much you're in physical pain because you're converting emotional pain to physical pain? Mm. It's easier to deal with physical pain yeah. than emotional pain. So it, to really get curious about why you're doing the behavior, which sometimes can be about control, but sometimes can be about other things. Uh, I'll tell you. Um, so in my book, I, I talk about my very first group for women who struggle with binge eating. Yeah. And I walked in and it was in an agency. So everyone had, they had been all picked and vetted for the group, but they hadn't met me. So I was walking in for the first time and, and, and this group of women looked at me and one of them literally said, what does a skinny bitch like you know about binge eating disorder? Oh no. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, I was mortified. Anyway. But I told them the story of how I was five years old. I told them all the stories ab about that. And we realized that there was actually common ground, that it wasn't about my body size, but I understood the struggle. And one woman in the group, the whole time she was like, 
no, I just really like food too much. I just really have no willpower. It's just that if I could just lose this 20 pounds by having more willpower, I would be better. But she kept coming to the group. So here I am talking about, you know, what, like, like, let's identify what's going on with you. Let's find new ways of processing your feelings. Let's find new ways of, of, of relating to yourself. Let's look at what the, how the past is haunting your present. Let's look at how to be in your life differently. Let's look at how to create a different future. And the whole time she's going, I just like food too much. Yeah. The last day of the group, maybe 20 minutes before the end of the group, she says, you know, I've been thinking, maybe if my mind was not focused on losing that 20 pounds, maybe I'd want to get divorced from my husband. I think I actually want to lose my husband. Mm. So thinking about her weight and the 20 pounds kept her from thinking about other things that were really scary. Yeah, that's good. I love that. Well, so to talk about husbands, uh, at some point you you meet this gentleman named David, and uh, you go on a first date. And after a first date, you in your head you're like, "Yeah, I I think this might be the guy." So talk a little bit about how you guys got connected, and at <laughs> what point in the journey uh, the two of you met. Yeah, we met online because there was no no way we would have he. Li- so he lived in Beverly Hills, an apartment in Beverly Hills, and I lived in, you know, Calabasas, which if you, if you don't live in L.A., you it's it's only like 20 miles, but it might as well be in a different state. Yeah. And I had a I had at the time it was a single mom and and he had no kids. And but he was a he's a lawyer and a writer. And I was just like, ooh, a, a, a writer like. Yes, because I've always loved writing and reading and all this stuff. So we met and it was the most, uh, no, let me actually go back to, <laughs> let me go back. So I had a daughter. Nobody ever met my daughter. Like on very rare occasions, if I was dating someone and they had to pick me up or something, they maybe got a glimpse of her, but no one ever met my daughter because I was very protective of my Ariel. No one met Ariel. Right. She wasn't I was going to let her get attached to anybody unless they were going to be someone that was going to be in my life permanently. Yeah. So on my first date with David, he meets my daughter. (laughs) So we just she was playing Little League at the time and her father was there and I was there and David was there and David came and we met for the first time in the parking lot. We hadn't we hadn't FaceTimed or anything. This was 20, 20, 21 years ago. Yeah. So we had only talked on the phone. I really liked his voice and his pictures, but who knows? I'd been on a lot of dates, 104 dates, by the way, with a lot of people who did not, who sounded great, but no, the reality was not such. I mean, yes. most of them were great guys, but they weren't my guys. Anyway, so we meet in the parking lot of a little league baseball <laughs> baseball parking lot. And 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 the the woman who was supposed to have the like bring the cupcakes for the team, she'd hurt her let her knee. So he's like, Oh, do you want some help? Do you want me to um get the cupcakes from your car? And so so I thought, wow, what a great guy. Like so helpful. So on my first date with David, Ariel's father is there. Ariel's playing baseball. And here comes David, who I've met for the first time. He's and he's holding cupcakes for the team. Yeah. And she 
walks up afterwards. She's eight years old. She she looks at me. She looks at him. She's like, who are you? I said, he said, I'm David. I'm a friend of your mom's. Would you like a cupcake? She said, I don't like cupcakes. And he left. <laughs> she left. She left. And then we left. And we went on our date. And we went on our date to the commons in Calabasas. And we're talking. We're having this amazing conversation. And then as we're leaving, there's Ariel again. So on our first date, he meets my daughter, her father, his wife, their baby. I'm like, it was quite a first date. And he's yeah. and, and he wasn't scared off. Anyway, and then later they became the best of friends. And um, you know, they're super close to this day. So, but you know what? When you know, you know. And I just it was an incredible first date. And we've he's He's been my supporter ever since. I was just out of grad school when we met and I would not be where I am today without my husband. Mm, that's so good. Now, a a question that I'd love to dive into, you know, on significant others and or and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a significant other, but supporting someone in your life that may have, you know, any disorders, because to your to your point earlier, you know, it doesn't help to say, hey, well, you should just get over it or, hey, you know, maybe do this, right? Um, because it's a decision that they have to, one, you know, make known to themselves, but two, be willing to work through. So what's your encouragement to somebody that's either a best friend, a sibling, a parent, a significant other, and how to support somebody navigating through that journey? Yeah, that is a great question. So the first thing to think about is that if someone is struggling with food, think of it as a weed and a, and a root. Mm. you don't just pluck a weed and hope it will grow, not grow back, right? Yeah. You know, if you pluck a weed, it will grow back. You don't have to be a gardener to know that. You have to get to that proverbial root, which I really especially love this analogy because um, so much of the time uh, we're in the dark, right? Our, the, the roots of the, 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 the root reasons or the root causes for much of our behavior is hidden from us in the dark, much like a, a root is hidden from us in the the, the dark of the dirt. Yeah. So remember that, that, that the behavior is a, it's actually a solution to some problem. It is not the problem. Mm -hmm. And people often think, well, whether they're struggling with it or, or a loved one is struggling with it. Well, the eating part is the problem. No, it is a solution to the problem. Yeah. So the number one thing to never, ever, ever do, because Everybody tells me that they're that people do this to them is don't be the food police. Mm. Don't say things like, do you, do you really think you should eat that? Mm. Do you really need that? Don't give the look, you know, the, the look, the silent look that screams, do you <laughs> think you should eat that? Right. Um, don't say anything about their weight. Don't say I'm worried about your health. Don't mm. say any of those things. They do not help. They only shame. Instead, say, what's going on with you? Tell me about, you know, what, you know, what are you conflicted about these days? What, like, get to the root. What are you feeling right now? What are you upset about? What are you happy about? Like, look at why they are maybe eating, not what they are eating. Hmm. That's really good. And, and you have a phrase that I like, and it was, 
it is not what you're eating that's the true problem. It's what's eating at you that is the real problem. So I, I like that phrase, and I think you just explained that really well there. Yeah, it's and and it's not what it's not what you weigh that is the problem. It's what's weighing on you. Yeah, and it's to really think about that whether it's you, what someone is struggling with food or knows someone who is struggling with food. They're not struggling with food. Like there is no. There is no food problem. There is no eating problem. There's a problem that's getting resolved with food. So ask open-ended questions. You know, how how are you doing really? What can how can I help you? Do how do you what do you need support with? That's open-ended funny. questions just can't be answered with a yes or a no. Yes. And never, ever, ever say anything about their food or their weight. Never. Yeah. That's such good advice. I love it. So to dive into your books then, um, and if you're watching this, you'll see the binge for <laughs> the binge here right oh, look, behind Look, I come us. prepared. Yeah, and food for thought. So talk a little bit about how you you know decided to introduce or get started writing and what the inspiration was behind them. Sorry, shameless self-promotion there. Okay. Hey, we're, we're going to promote all of that. I love it. All right. All right. So, um, so what happened was I became a psychoanalyst and a psychoanalyst, people usually think, oh, you know, Freud and the past. And, you know, why do you always talk about the past? I'm like, you know, no, no, I don't talk about the past as if it happened in the past because people come to me and they say, oh, you like, I went to my last therapist and I spent 10 years talking about the past and no, nothing ever changed. Yeah. And I say, of course not. You can't talk about the past and have it change the present. You have to have a bridge to understanding what it was about the past that is haunting your present. So if you had a judgmental, critical uh, parent, are you now judgmental and critical of yourself? Are you unconsciously seeking out people who are judgmental and critical or, you know, plug in whatever you want? Yeah. Are you like, how is your past affecting your present? And how does that impact your relationship with food? Because if you're never... If you never have a satisfying relationship, you're empty. That emptiness might be being filled with food. So I started, I started uh, doing this blog called Make Peace with Food. And I thought like maybe 10 people were reading it. Yeah. And then I get this, then I get this email. Your blog has been nominated as one of the best eating disorder blogs of you know, whatever it was. And I thought, Oh, and I, someone said, you know, you can look up and see how many people are reading your blog. And I went, no, I did not know that. And so I, I looked it up and it was like 50,000 people had read my blog and I went, Oh, people really need to hear this. So then someone said to me, you know, have you thought about doing a podcast? And I literally was like, what's a podcast? (laughs) back in the early days of podcast. So I started like win the diet war with Dr. Nina, which I did for about a a year. And then I, 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 I ended up, well, I was on like a two prong. One was academic and one was mainstream. So academically I was asked by Roman and Littlefield to write a book. So, which is how food for thought came. It is an academic book, but my my, what I wanted to do was write it in a way that was really user-friendly. Hmm. Um, so then I did that. And then I was doing a lot of radio shows. And then I start, I had my LA talk radio show, which I've now done for um, seven plus years. And 
people would say, well, what can I read what you're talking about? What can I read that talks about this? And I was like, well, clearly I have to write the book because it doesn't exist. Yeah. Doesn't exist. And so I wrote the binge cure and I very specifically said, called it the binge cure because one of the fallacies about eating disorders is you have to always be in recovery, Mm. in recovery. Who wants to be in recovery and every day wake up and be like, I'm going to be good today and I'm in recovery and I'm going to think about all this stuff. My position is liberation is this is something you used to do. It's in your rear view mirror. You're cured of it and you can go out and live your life. You can get up and think about your day, not your diet. So I wrote The Binge Cure, uh, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating, because I wanted to give the, like mainstream readers, the people who were listening to my radio show um, or writing to me from my blog, uh, some something to, uh, something to look at, to, to read, to understand on, on a deeper level, but user-friendly. That's really good. Now, in regards to, you know, figuring out, the the book side of things for you once again you came out with these couple of different books and there's a lot of different angles and avenues one could take how did you decide to really kind of dive deep and navigate into the the books that you've ended up writing i i think you have to write you have to follow your heart with writing yeah you know you have to one one of the reasons that um you know, my husband is a lawyer and a novelist is so that he can write whatever he wants to write. Yeah. He doesn't have to worry about, will this book sell? Like he just writes about from his heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that principle really comes through his writing and it comes through everybody's writing who's writing from the heart. If someone is writing to try to like get it like make sure the market like hit the market at the right time and like write something trendy it it doesn't work because it's flat it's not coming from the heart um and so i really wanted to write something from my heart i wanted this book to be like me talking to somebody and just saying hey look this is like let's look at this let's look at what's going on with you and it does this doesn't mean you're broken there's nothing wrong with you you don't have a mental disorder you have a very negative coping strategy and mm. i'm going to help you look at where it came from i'm going to help you find new ways of coping i'm going to because there's only one of me and i can only see so many people in my coaching programs and my as as a therapist and as an analyst I can't clone myself at this point. So I had to do it through a book. Yes. You know, I had to, I had to reach people in this way. And so this, this book is like my, it's like my therapist in a book saying like from my heart, this is, this is possible and, and be curious, not critical. And you can figure this out. And the outcome was that. And then now, you know, my, the binge care journal, which is the, the workbook, more shameless self-promotion um the the workbook accompaniment to it because i i just am so passionate about helping people see that that food is not the problem let's get curious about what is the problem and then we can find the solution i love that well and one thing that i want to highlight um 
I think an interesting dynamic in life is that oftentimes the people that are best able to serve someone are people that have had a journey, right? They've experienced similar thoughts. I think also though, sometimes we we have the most self-doubt about those topics because it's like, well, I've struggled with that. Like surely I couldn't coach somebody about this topic because I've struggled with the same thing. Who who am I to be able to speak about this when I, I've had the own struggle, right? And it's like, well, you're actually the exact person to talk about it because you can relate, you do understand and you've been through the muck. Maybe not the exact same situation, right? But you can relate at a very deep level. So talk about, you know, getting rid of the negative talk of am I the right person or not and just stepping into something that one clearly you're passionate about I can hear it as we talk but two you had been, had experiences of yourself you know I that little five-year-old who was just like mm, 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 I'm gonna be me I'm not too much yeah. <laughs> or I guess I am too much but before I thought I was told I was too much I think that part of me has always been there. And someone says, you can't do it. I think the part of me actually that said to that Kaiser therapist, F you, that part of me has always been like, you know what? Oh, you tell me I can't do it. Uh, let me show you. Yeah. Let me prove you wrong. So there's always been a part of me that's been very uh, rebellious to the idea of limitations. And someone tells you, you can't. Um, and I hear a lot, I've heard this my whole life or I've heard like, oh, you don't look a certain way. You don't look like a, like a psychoanalyst. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I supposed to be older with a gray hair and a beard? And if I'm a woman, like, am I supposed to dress in dowdy out, um, suits and yeah, you know what? You can be a psychoanalyst and like fashion and have blonde hair. Like those two things are not mutually exclusive. So I, I've always liked breaking the stereotypes. Yeah. Um, but I will, I will share that for a long time, I was terrified of public speaking, mm. terrified of public speaking. And I came to realize that I was like kind of projecting the, 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 the negative judgmental kind of experiences that I'd had with say my parents always goes back to your parents. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. Um, oldest psychoanalytic joke in the world. And I was projecting that into the audience and back at me. And I was just terrified. And then two things happened. One, I realized that. And secondly, I got, I got diagnosed with breast cancer early, early, caught it early, minimal, like operation, radiation, no chemo. I was so lucky ladies get, get your mammograms because they caught it in a mammogram. And I hadn't like, it was all my doctors were astounded and they're like, how is this even possible? You're just, this is not, you're not the person that gets this, but I was anyway, when that happens to you and you have cancer. And then later I had a horrible autoimmune disease. When these things happen and you actually think about, Oh, you know, what's important is how many times are my daughters going to hug me? Mm. These ideas that these plans that I have for my future, are they going to happen? When that stuff goes through your mind and you have to come to terms with that and it resets priorities, getting in front of a stage of people uh, uh, on stage in front of a group of people was no longer scary. Yeah. It was actually exciting. Like I get to do this rather yes. than what are they thinking of me? I mean, and even if I wasn't actively thinking, what are they thinking of me? 
it was like my body was reacting and I would shake so hard. I had to take propranolol because that would just take over my, wow. my brain, not my mind. But now it, it doesn't because I, I'm more excited about what I'm sharing than what they're thinking. Yes, I love it. Well, Dr. Nia, you are doing amazing work in your realm. And uh, we want to encourage everyone to go grab any one of the books, all of the books. Um, and where can they find you best and where can they find the books? Um, they can find the books on Amazon. Actually, the Binge Cure Journal is going to be coming out next week. Well, it's going to be coming out in um, early September. Yeah. Uh, but you can get the Binge Cure on Amazon. You can also get it at a discount on my website, Dr. Nina Inc., which is D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C.com. And I'm all over social media. You can find my radio show, my new show on Voice America. You can get all the links to that on my website. Or, or find me find me on Instagram, dr.nina.psychoanalyst. I love it. Well, Dr. Nina, thanks so much for sharing your journey and the pivotal moments that have led to where you're at and excited to follow your journey. Thank you so much for having me.